Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Thanksgiving, and particularly the concept that life has dealt you a rotten set of cards. Life has dealt you a rotten set of cards is something that is apparent, I would say, to my children from time to time. There's a couple of ideas that I would share with my kids about concepts of gratefulness, about the notion of enough. One of them, I think I've shared before on previous inappropriate conversations, is the idea that if you make it impossible for people to make you happy, people will lose interest in whether you're happy or not. The specific story I may have told here, if not on another interview, was one day in particular when my daughter was throwing a very big tantrum because we'd gone to the store and on the way out of this grocery store, there's a bakery section, and we'd picked up a couple of, two or three actually, of of those special cookies, bigger than normal, made by the bakery, basically a sugar cookie with a lot of frosting and, and with a lot of creativity poured into the frosting. And if I'm not mistaken, these were like smiley face cookies, the have a nice day kind of cookie. We got home, and we realized that there were more cookies than there were the two of us. My my wife and son were gone somewhere else, and it was just me and my daughter. And she wanted two of those three cookies, and she wanted them immediately. And as will sometimes happen when you're dealing with somebody who's you know less than five years old, it's not easy for them to control their desires or their emotions. And she began throwing a tantrum, even before I gave her a cookie, over the fact that she wasn't going to get two, or at least she wasn't going to get two right away. That if there was going to be a split of these cookies, one simply wasn't going to be enough for her. And in the midst of the tantrum, I'm quite sure I looked at her and, and with more than perhaps an acceptable amount of parental sarcasm, said, Life has dealt you a rotten set of cards. In other words, I have a really hard time feeling sorry for you. Because... We've gone to the grocery store, and even as a young child, she had participated in the process. So there were perhaps things that made their way from the cart to the checkout lane that weren't on the original list, and that probably would not have been approved if we'd gotten together and had a family meeting about it first. Plus, in addition to that, on the way out, we'd bought these special cookies. So I told her that she was simply going to have to find a way to be happy with one cookie or she was not going to get even the one. That if she made it impossible for me to make her happy with the one cookie, then there was no reason for me to give her any cookies at all. Because I was going to have to put up with a tantrum either way. In fact, I believe I might have even told her that if she was going to put on a show for me, a dramatic example of somebody going hysterical and losing control of their emotions, I might as well eat my cookie right then and there, while she had none, so that I could at least have a snack while I enjoyed the show. Life has dealt you a rotten set of cards. Now that may seem like a strange message to focus on as we prepare for Thanksgiving Day in the United States, but I suspect that it really isn't at all. I've probably shared in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations that Thanksgiving might be my favorite holiday. It was certainly my favorite holiday from the perspective of uh, friendship and fellowship with my brother, 
uh, families getting together, things of that nature. And I've, oh, of course, I enjoy the food as well. But in this case, I think that there really is an opportunity in this country in particular for us to recognize how insufficiently thankful we are. And I don't want this to be a guilt trip. I ultimately want it to be uplifting as possible. But we take so many of our blessings for granted that it's somewhat shocking. Every now and then, I'll be with uh, family members or friends around a Thanksgiving table. And if you put everybody that you're about to dine with on the spot and ask them to share something that they were thankful for, really, personally, uniquely, you know, not a trite saying about, well, my family and my health, but something that was true this year that wasn't true one year ago. It's amazing how often people would fall down at that test. That first off, you got to be put on the spot and you're maybe not speaking in public, but you're speaking in front of a large group. You're gathered around a meal. But to me, that time of Thanksgiving prayer shouldn't necessarily be one person raising a voice in prayer. All of us have things to be thankful for. I remember seeing a, one of those online memes, an image talking about the, the gap between first world problems and third world problems. Or as I would like to call them, the, the life has dealt you a rotten set of cards crowd versus people who literally are wondering where their next meal is going to be and have really no concept of what we in the United States would call clean water. It was a picture of a, of a boy, presumably an African you know, child, talking to maybe a missionary or somebody else, and the child has the speech bubble, and he's basically saying, let me get this straight. Where you live, there is so much clean water that you crap in yours? I mean, when was the last time we actually took an objective look at our toilet scenario in most of the Western world, certainly in the United States? If you were to walk into a toilet and find that the water inside the bowl was not clean. And I'm not saying somebody else left without flushing. That certainly is a concern. But no, even after you flush it, the water that returns is not as clear as it should be. We would view that as a major issue. We might even complain to the manager of the establishment that we were visiting. But it's really a first world problem. Because if we didn't have enough clean water to go around, if we had to segregate somehow, which water went into the toilet bowl and which water went into the drinking fountain and there was only one of them could get the clean water, surely we would make a decision that's different than the one that suggests that it's important for us to take a crap in clean water. You have so much clean water where you live that you take a crap in yours. Well, that's an interesting idea. Might be a you know, touch scatological. Maybe not the kind of thing I would raise in a church service if I was sharing a witness from the pulpit, but still, it tells a story that we really need to hear. We have more blessings than we could possibly count, and we take the overwhelming majority of those for granted. What is it that we would be thankful for this year that we weren't thankful for a year ago, either because we were insufficiently expressing our gratitude or because it's something new and different in our lives? In my life, speaking as Greg, I'm thankful for the Walk the Earth podcast. I'm thankful that a church situation that had gone poisonous over the course of many months, if not years, that I'm finally being placed on a different path, and what I'm doing seems far more healthy and far more spiritual than anything that happened in the 12 months leading up to that. But that was just, just off the top of my head, because I'm recording a podcast now, so I'm thinking about podcasting. And I don't want to go into friendship, which is truly where a lot of my passion lies, because I'm going to try to avoid dropping a lot of names. 
But theoretically, if you've got a point in your life where you don't have a friend that you could name by name, that you are that thankful for, then something's gone kind of seriously wrong. And I think all of us probably should hear the voice in our own head from time to time, sarcastically reminding us that life hasn't dealt us a rotten set of cards. We may not win every hand we gamble, but most of the people I know are sitting with a deck of cards that is obscenely good compared to almost everyone else on this planet. We have first world problems, in other words. We probably should have the recognition of how that would sound to somebody who was genuinely in need, somebody who was hungry, somebody who was homeless, somebody who was sick, and by sick I mean devastatingly sick, or in prison. And by in prison, I mean rightfully in prison or wrongfully imprisoned. We're facing fewer consequences for our mistakes than almost anybody who's sitting in a prison cell right now. And yet there isn't a huge gap between the one mistake we've made that we didn't have to deal with, we didn't have to face the music for, and perhaps in some cases the one mistake that some of those other people have made. Mistakes based on circumstance. I want to get to the different drummer segment because I want to talk about just how extreme this notion of gratitude can be. And I think that the different drummer does so in a way that many of us might find disturbing. And on the other side of the different drummer segment, I want to talk about some practical situations, some real life examples, and what we might do differently if we had that bigger, broader perspective. As a Christian, I'm very tempted to call it a spiritual perspective, but I don't think that this kind of point of view is limited to Christianity, and our different drummer may make us question whether we could share the view of even a Christian who speaks of that kind of radical gratitude. If I release this as I plan near November 22nd this year, this year being 2013, it's going to be 140 years to the day of a hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. I'm not necessarily speaking about the music written by Philip P. Bliss. Today our different drummer is the lyricist Horatio G. Spafford, It Is Well With My Soul. Let me start with a couple of lines of lyric from the hymn itself, and then I'm going to quote a biography in a book that deals specifically with the story behind hymns. There's actually two volumes in my home, and there may have been more volumes published since, of a series called Then Sings My Soul. The first edition was 150 of the world's greatest hymn stories. Not just the hymn, but the story behind the hymn. It's written by Robert J. Morgan. It is well with my soul, lyrics by Horatio G. Spafford, go like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Now, 
you'd be wrong if you assumed that these were words written by somebody who was truly at peace with the world and the Lord. Somehow, he was managing to pin a hymn that expressed what I would call the Newton's third law of motion idea, that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. This is his reaction to life truly dealing him a rotten set of cards. Here's the story recorded by Morgan, for it is well with my soul. When the great Chicago fire consumed the Windy City in 1871, Horatio G. Spafford, an attorney heavily invested in real estate, lost a fortune. About that time, his only son, aged four, succumbed to scarlet fever. Horatio drowned his grief in work, pouring himself into rebuilding the city and assisting the 100,000 who had been left homeless. In November of 1873, he decided to take his wife and daughters to Europe. He wanted to visit an evangelistic meeting in England and then enjoy a vacation. When an urgent matter detained Horatio in New York, he decided to send his wife, Anna, and their four daughters, Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie, on ahead. As he saw them settled into a cabin aboard the luxurious French liner Ville du Havre, an unease filled his mind, and he moved them to a room closer to the bow of the ship. Then he said goodbye, promising to join them soon. During the small hours of November 22, 1873, as Ville du Havre glided over smooth seas, the passengers were jolted from their bunks. The ship had collided with an iron sailing vessel, and water poured in like Niagara. The ship tilted dangerously. Screams, prayers, and oaths merged into a nightmare of unmeasured terror. Passengers clung to posts, tumbled through darkness, and were swept away by the powerful currents of icy ocean. Loved ones fell from each other's grasp and disappeared into foaming blackness. Within two hours, the mighty ship had vanished beneath the waters. The 226 fatalities included Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie, all four of the children. Mrs. Spafford was found nearly unconscious, clinging to a piece of the wreckage. When the 47 survivors landed in Cardiff, Wales, she cabled her husband these two words, Saved alone. Horatio immediately booked passage to join his wife. En route, on a cold December night, the captain called him aside and said, I believe we are now passing over the place where the Ville de Havre went down. Spafford went to his cabin, but found it hard to sleep. He said to himself, It is well, the will of God be done. He later wrote his famous hymn based on these words. So by this account, recorded by Morgan, perhaps November 22nd isn't the date that the hymn was truly written, but the date of the fatal events that inspired the hymn that he wrote. And it makes you wonder, who among us, having, within a short span, lost our fortune, lost our son, lost four daughters, now basically your, all of your children are gone, having your wife, life threatened in a shipwreck, how many of us could look to the skies and say, God's will be done? It raises serious questions about what we mean by God's will. And it actually raises serious questions about the title of the hymn itself. How on earth could it be well with my soul that life has dealt me such a rotten set of cards? That is what I'm talking about by radical thanksgiving. 
if a man like this particular attorney and him writer could find the perspective to say, hey, things happen which are beyond my control, and I am not going to sever my relationship with the Lord over those things which are beyond my control, then heaven help the rest of us who can't find a way to be thankful over much smaller problems. Spafford is listed in the back of the hymnal that I still own as having lived between the years 1828 and 1888, and this is the only hymn from him in this hymnal. It is well with my soul has always meant a lot to me, though. It's a song that I actually have a great deal of connection to, and in times of great grief, or certainly great concern, this is one of the hymns that I take a good deal of comfort in. This one... And uh, another one, I believe, written by Martin Luther called Great is Thy Faithfulness. One of them expressing confidence in the midst of you know, whatever is coming. This one, It Is Well With My Soul, representing an enduring faith while looking in the rearview mirror on what has, what has occurred. You see, I take my religion seriously. I take the scriptures seriously, as anybody who's listened to the most recent couple of inappropriate conversations, particularly Christianity 301, should lay that case out pretty well. But I also like hymns that are based on a much more deep level of thought. I don't want to take a pot shot at ideas like, I come to the garden alone. But I come to the garden alone doesn't inspire anywhere near as much soul-searching in me as it is well with my soul. I recently have noticed that one of my favorite country singers, a Canadian singer named Paul Brandt, has recorded a collection of hymns. This is not that unusual for country artists, and I intend to pick it up as soon as I can. It includes It Is Well With My Soul, and his recording of it is something like six minutes long. The length of that particular track pleased me because it led me to think that it was going to be all four verses, at least the four verses I'm familiar with, and not just the typical three or even two verse structure. You often see when this hymn is recorded by pop or contemporary Christian artists. It's a funny thing when you're looking at somebody who's put down a collection of hymns in that sometimes the songs end up being much longer. Because when you think about singing through all four verses, or in the case of some hymns, six, seven, or eight verses, there's going to be a certain amount of length to that, especially if you built instrumentation around it. Now, Paul Brandt's always meant a lot to me. I don't know that I'm prepared yet to name him a different drummer. But all the same, he's written a song called The Sycamore Tree. And if you've listened to the inappropriate conversations called Being a Tree on World Storytelling Day, you'll know that The Sycamore Tree has a special significance for me. And I'm also very impressed with his vocal range. I bring up Paul Brandt now to point you in the direction of somebody who does the song It Is Well With My Soul better than I do. I've heard the recording on YouTube, so I know exactly what I'm getting when I make that purchase. Also, Chris Rice, who's formerly a different drummer, has a recording on his hymns collection of It Is Well With My Soul, and I'm pretty sure from memory that he includes all four verses of that as well. What I'm going to do next is something that I don't often do on inappropriate conversations, and I've never done with the microphone that I'm using today, so we'll see how it goes. But I'm going to sing all four verses of this myself. I'm going to do it a cappella because I don't have the ability to play a musical instrument. And I'm also going to do it quickly and in one take. But if I can offer a tribute to Horatio G. Spafford, about whom I know nothing more than what I've shared, 
And he made the best thing I can do is offer up his song and then talk a little bit on the other side of how his song has been a driving force behind the concept of Thanksgiving that has led me to say things to people before, sometimes to their face, and not just young children. Life has dealt you a rotten set of cards, but maybe you should rethink how you're playing the game. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Something's happened a couple of times at work in recent years, and this probably maybe goes back even seven or eight years, where a position will become open, it'll either get created or somebody will leave a job and create a vacancy, where the position is in and of itself a promotion. And sometimes a promotion attracts applicants for more than one reason. To me, the best reason to seek a promotion, if you're committed to the success of an organization, is to look at that position and say, hey, not just me personally, but the organization is better off if I try to fill this spot, whether it's a brand new spot or a spot created by a vacancy, 
it's not just me that's going to benefit from doing this different job. But there are other reasons why people apply for positions. Sometimes it's simply seeking a title. Sometimes it's the the money and or benefits involved. Sometimes it's just about pride that I'm getting this position because I don't want the other person who might get it to get it. The last thing I want is to have to deal with that person in this role. Or simply, there's a competition where some position has been created, there's an opening, and whoever gets it is the best, and I certainly want to be the best. Now, obviously, I've laid out a case pretty well, and I've stacked the deck a bit to say the best reason to get it is not just that it's the right thing for you, your career, your finances, your family, but also right for the organization. But what amazes me is how often somebody who is sitting in a current role, whether they be an analyst or a supervisor or what, then they want that manager job, they want that director job, whatever that next step up is. I've seen too many times the pattern of somebody going through the process to interview for the job, not getting it, and suddenly throwing some sort of tantrum. I have, thankfully, not I witnessed the examples that I've heard about where people have actually thrown things and unleashed a stream of obscenities at either their boss or other people involved in the interview process, but I've seen people storm out. I've seen people walk out, get in their car, drive away, and never work another day for that organization again. And in some cases, I've seen these sudden four-day, five-day weekends or these uh, unplanned weeks off to deal with the trauma of not getting the job. Oftentimes, I've seen that happen where the person who's storming out really didn't seem like they were the leading candidate for the position in the first place. Or certainly, if you looked at the job that was open from the perspective of Not just what's best for any given individual, but what's the best decision for the company. The person wasn't the best decision for the company. And if there was any doubt about that, certainly throwing a tantrum leads some credibility to the idea that maybe whoever they chose instead was the right call. These are people who, despite being grown adults, perhaps need to hear someone, someone close to them, someone they care about and love, look at them and, as lovingly as possible, say, Hey, life has dealt you a rotten set of cards. A week ago, you came into work doing this particular job, thinking that you were going to be continuing to do this particular job for the next year. You not only weren't expressing dissatisfaction with your job, but you were happy and satisfied with it enough to have excelled enough to have earned consideration for a promotion in that job. Life can't have suddenly gone to, you know, just gone to hell overnight because a position that maybe didn't even exist or wasn't open a month ago isn't going to be yours doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. I say this as somebody who doesn't really lack sympathy. I get what it's like to miss an opportunity. I worked in the record stores as a manager in the field in the record stores. And one of the things about that job that I loved the most was my ability to manage the inventory. If somebody convinced me through uh, repeated requests and through local trends and Um, what clubs were doing in town, that we needed a ska section. I had the power to create a ska section. If we had suddenly gone from a store that needed one rack of sheet music to two racks of sheet music, and the only reason those racks weren't bulging to the hilt was because the larger quantity of inventory we ordered was flying out the door. If I had the ability to branch into karaoke with double the assortment of everyone else in my area, I could make that decision too. But somewhere along the way, the company made what I think was a wise decision to centralize the management of inventory, to move 
all the people who are really good at controlling assortments and making decisions about inventory into a new position in the corporate office. It ultimately involved picking four or five people. One who was already in the corporate office sort of understood the systems that were being used there. One that was brought in as an expert from the outside, somebody who had done this type of what we called then merchandise analysis at the corporate level for a competitor. And two people from out in the field who had demonstrated as store managers that they had a unique aptitude for this particular discipline. I was convinced, then and now, to be honest, that I was the best person for that job, that I certainly had the passion and the aptitude for it. I was willing to relocate. There were lots of factors involved. And the more interested I became in getting the position, the more I took steps to prepare myself for telephone interview, a couple of them, in fact, and pursue the role the more, well, the more disappointment I was setting myself up for if I didn't get it. I could offer a couple of reasons why I didn't get it. The company was experiencing financial difficulty at the time, enough so that had I been offered the job, there still would have been a discussion in my family about whether it was risky to join an organization that was going into Chapter 11 and you know, conceivably may not emerge. That was a risk. That was something to consider. But I also think that perhaps because of the financial straits, there was reason for the company to perhaps pick candidates who are a little bit less expensive to move. When I finally did get the nod later, yeah, more than a year later, joining after the department had already been formed, I was a pretty expensive person to relocate. By that time, we were living in a small home, two children, dog and a cat, our own washer and dryer things that would need to be moved and transported in the process of uprooting from a home in one city and moving into a home in the other city. The story I want to tell today, though, is not getting that job. Now, it certainly helped me in having the right perspective that I personally knew one of the managers who was picked to fill those initial roles in the creation of this department and had a tremendous amount of esteem for his skill and his ability. So it wasn't that I had to worry about the company. I wasn't looking and saying, not just is this not ideal for me, but this is not ideal for the company. The company's in trouble. That was in no way the case. The company was actually in excellent hands, and his leadership helped create that department. I joined about a year later, and as others joined later, as that the uh, department grew and some ebb and flow took place, we pulled ourselves out of Chapter 11 and really came on the very brink of an initial public offering. So it wasn't that the company was making a mistake. But I still had to deal with the disappointment of finding out that I wasn't picked. Now, the scenario I described earlier was somebody who stormed out because she didn't get a job. Well, she wasn't picked, but she was in the final. Five or six or seven people considered. Well, so was I. I was in that final handful of people considered. The difference is that rather than storming out in a huff and considering what my options were, which, you know... My options were not. You come back to work, you continue to manage your store. And the main thing I did was I, I took a day, maybe even more than a day, to try to compose myself and get that perspective that you have to have. Again, I got nowhere near the perspective of looking down on the ocean waters that literally devoured my entire family of, of all of its children and find peace in that storm, that scenario. I wasn't facing that, but I still had to face the disappointment of not getting a job. The difference, though, is that once I composed myself, I picked up the phone, talked to the person who interviewed me who was actually going to be leading that new department, and asked her a couple of simple questions. Uh, first, I thanked her for the time, 
I asked her what I needed to do to prepare myself the next time there was an opening inside that department. Because nothing in the interview process and nothing in my preparation had done anything to calm my desire to be part of this new thing. So was there things I could do to prepare? What should I do to keep myself ready so that if another opening happened, I would be actively considered? That was the first question. The other question I I asked was, I still recognize the fact that you're making something new here that hasn't existed before. And that's going to involve some challenges. That's going to be difficult in some ways. Is there anything that I can do to begin modeling the kind of behavior that any one store can do to make her department succeed? Because I wasn't wishing any ill will on the guy who got the job instead of me, at least from my perspective. And I also wasn't wishing anything bad to happen to the people who'd made the decision that didn't go my way. I needed the department to thrive and succeed. In fact, the best thing for me was if it succeeded to such an extent that its delivering on its, on its expectations needed them to add people. In fact, not only did I need the guy who got the job instead of me to succeed, I needed him to succeed so wildly that the company would be inclined to hire more people who'd done inventory management out in the field rather than seek more people who'd worked for competition in the past. Because there's two disciplines. Do you understand how this particular record store does its thing and who our clients are? Or do you understand centralized inventory management? And really, you've got to have both those disciplines in place. Now, the answers to the questions were, you did very well. There's really nothing that I would change. Keep doing what you're doing. And we'll remember you. Well, that was the best news I'd heard in quite some time. And the other thing that I heard was, I'm not going to hesitate to get back with you. We're going to find out how this goes. I'm sure that there'll be some challenges. And if there's questions, I take great comfort, she said, in knowing that there's somebody out there who can tell me what's happening in the field. Somebody who's interested in, in working with our department, even if you're not going to be working here in the corporate office with our department. I took both of those to be good answers, and it was only about a year later that I got that phone call that they needed to add me to the staff, and they needed to add me in a hurry. I had kept myself ready, and they had kept that in mind. In other words, I didn't stop to consider whether life had dealt me a rotten set of cards. I simply looked at the cards that I had said, what do I have to be thankful for? Well, I was in the final conversation for who they wanted to put into this new department. And I had access to the person who was leading that department, and she was willing, not just to speak with me and answer my immediate questions, but willing to reach out and speak with me later if something came up, if there was a problem, if some assumptions about how the new department would work um, were not consistent with what was actually happening sort of out there in the field, so to speak. That's the right way to handle it. Would I have handled it that well on the very day that I got the news? No. I've learned through experience, being somebody who can run hot-tempered, that sometimes when you get news that is surprisingly bad or disappointing, but really disappointing, to simply keep quiet. I've told people before, you don't have to worry about me when I'm speaking, even if I'm speaking a little bit angrily, even if I'm confrontational to a degree because I don't like what's going on. When you need to worry about me is when I no longer have anything to say. When I left the church we recently left, and have we begun searching for other churches, there was at least two or three weeks where, regardless the provocation, regardless what sort of insensitive and unchristian things might have been happening in my presence, I no longer had much to say about it, 
because I knew I was already done. So in this case, I went through that day or so process of getting to where I was capable of speaking constructively into whatever the situation was. In this case, a potential job change that didn't happen. That is so much more effective, so much more loving, to just be honest about it, than pitching a fit, calling people names, and impugning the dignity of somebody that, in my case, was going to end up being a coworker. If all, if all things played out to the best of the best possible world for me. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. The thing I like best about Thanksgiving is family. And by family, I probably do mean family and friends. That's really the one blessing. Because I now live in a place where I am several states away from anybody who's a family member. It's more than just crossing one border. It's, in some cases, a plane flight is how you have to manage it. So I know, on this Thanksgiving, I won't be with family. I will, however, be with friends, and friends that we have shared Thanksgiving with on multiple previous occasions. And that's something to be thankful for. These were friends that we attended a church with for many years, and both of us have, for our own reasons, roughly the same time left the church. Meaning that... This fellowship could have been broken by the fact that we now worship in different places, that we didn't follow each other to the same church. That didn't happen. I have that to be thankful for. There are many things in the midst of whatever storm we're dealing with that we should have a perspective about, that at the very least, things are very difficult and we're shedding a ton of tears. We can be thankful for the fact that we have those tears to shed, that we are capable of Casting off these concerns, whether alone, by crying into our own hands, or with comfort of friends and family to get us through, or, as in the case of this hymn writer, the ability to look up, not per se to the sky, but more metaphorically than that, and say, this is beyond my control. I can complain about what's happened to me, or I can be thankful for what hasn't, because there are many worse things that could occur. It's hard to look at the story of our different drummer this week, Horatio G. Spafford, and think about what more difficulty could he have faced. But he was a man who had the perspective to say, I didn't lose my wife. I'm still going to be reconciled with her. I still have my ministry. I still have my law practice. He was able to find the things that for many of us would probably take weeks or months to find. Many people have left the fellowship of other Christians and left the church because at their moment of greatest need, whether it be as dramatic as Spafford's or not, they weren't getting any answers. Their own faith was not at that time developed enough to see them through, and they weren't getting help and fellowship from within the church where people could sympathize with them but also support them to help them find the perspective that bridges that gap between a kid in Africa who's never even seen clean water 
in the case of the internet meme, and a man whose family drowned in fresh, cold, salty water, that there is a gap there that needs to be understood. We talk about being a free country. Some Americans talk about being a Christian nation, and yet we see so little gratitude from that nation. We see so few people giving back. We have so few people with a perspective that just because they didn't get their way doesn't mean that everything is terrible. Doesn't mean that they have to lash out at somebody who did get their way or somebody who happens to be better off. That jealousy, envy, and spite are not qualities that we ought to be celebrating as a nation during this national holiday called Thanksgiving. We need to realize that life has not dealt us a rotten set of cards, because unlike many people in the world, we actually have some cards. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I'm visible on Facebook with a page for inappropriate conversations and another page for Walk the Earth. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg. And the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org, has show notes there with comments enabled. Thanks for listening. And frankly, thanks for everything. Among the things I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving are people who've listened to the show and who keep coming back, regardless where I may take us, including into the treacherous and, frankly, deep waters of what it means to be thankful when you've really lost more than you can possibly count.